Hello and welcome to the LDF podcast brought to you by Desenia, the Quarterly Journal of Design. Uh, my name is Ollie Stratford, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Desenio. And my name is Christina Rabatsky, I'm the Deputy Editor of Desenio. Uh, we apologise for the slight echo on this recording. We are coming to you from a secret location in the Brompton Design District. It's currently completely empty with no furniture in it, so uh, that's why it's a bit echoey. Yes, listener, we're sat on the floor (laughs) bringing you all the design news that's fit to publish. Throughout the week of the London Design Festival this year, uh, we're going to be um, heading around the city and sort of seeing as many of the events, installations and exhibitions as we can. And then we're going to try and be podcasting regularly, bringing you some analysis and updates on the festival. So for anyone who doesn't know, the London Design Festival happens every September and it's uh, an event that takes place all over the city. So as many different venues as you can imagine, museums, galleries, shops, uh, public squares. And it's a chance where all the great and the good, uh, the bad and the awful of design come out and uh, put on little displays uh, of their work from the year, uh, new events that they've put forward. Some of these are entirely independent and uh, driven by the designers or curators. Others have a huge commercial aspect. They're sponsored by a brand. So there's a big mix during this week. So ironically, given that we're sitting on the floor, the first thing we're going to talk about is an exhibition of chairs and seating solutions called Please Sit, uh, which uh, just opened at Fenton House, a National Trust property in Hampstead. Uh, It's this beautiful, sumptuous, old Georgian house, which is exactly as you imagine, sort of quite towering, uh, full of beautiful knickknacks and ephemera and old ceramic collections and furniture. And then this little walled garden outside with an orchard. It's very picturesque. It's very kind of upper class. It'll be the first thing to go when the revolution comes, that kind of thing. So uh, six designers were invited to uh, respond to the interiors and and to the collections in Fenton House uh, and create uh, not chairs specifically, but seating solutions, I guess, because there's there's a bench, there's a a sort of cocoon-like chair and there's a bed that you can get into. Uh, In fact, everything is uh, meant to be sat on or sat in. Yeah, I think installation is one of those terms which is so overused in design. Everything is called an installation because it sounds good, but that's kind of what they are. Like you say, all of these pieces are sort of embedded within the room in some way responding to the architecture of that room, its function, maybe a collection that's been in there. But it's really elegantly done. It it, it doesn't have a heavy hand about it. Nothing feels forced. And all of the designer's work does feel as if it belongs in there. Hmm. So uh, there's a bench by uh, Nina Tolstrup, which is called Harp Sit Chord, which is inspired by one of the harpsichords in the house. And in, in fact, Fenton House has one of the biggest collections of harpsichords, I think, at least in a National Trust property. And uh, the bench is inspired by the shape of the harpsichord. You sit in it and look at the harpsichord that it's inspired by. Um, it it's re- very responsive. It's done in a subtle way and it feels thoroughly embedded. Yeah, and even some which have been designed so maybe they're not quite so sort of aesthetically sympathetic to the environment in a way that corresponds to the harpsichord. They do somehow still belong. So Michael Marriott, he's created almost this little 
guard's chair. It's like a little alcove you go into. And I think the outside is this sort of neon ply. So it's very out of keeping with all the decor, but still feels like it belongs. It creates this little um, contemplative space. And then the sight lines are focused on this extraordinary collection of old ceramic snuff boxes. And they're very funny. There's some which are sort of koi cups where they're little gaping mouths. You can get a little bit of snuff out of and shove it up your nose. Um, not in the exhibition, but in 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 past times. And the the chair or the alcove allows one person to sit in it at a time. So it it really does both sort of focus your gaze and create its own its own space. I mean, one of the installations that I think captures something of the spirit of the whole exercise which is quite whimsical and fun while still giving a little bit of history is a piece called part of the furniture by Maisie Broadhead who I think was specifically responding to the last occupant of the house one lady binning uh, who I think died in the 50s and she bequeathed the house to the National Trust and all of its collections it's quite quirky collections (laughs) I should say this is a chair which is upholstered in such a way that it looks like it grows out of the uh, carpet in one of the rooms. It's quite uncanny. Yeah, it's very strange and unsettling. It's quite spectral. So if you can imagine it, think of like a child's Halloween ghost costume, but instead of the white sheet, it's a sort of ostentatious Persian carpet stretched over their head. And instead of like the form of a person, it's the form of a sort of old Windsor chair. So the title of this project, Part of the Furniture, was supposedly inspired by Lady Binning, who uh, was uh, widowed at quite a young age and became something of an eccentric, something of a recluse, and wore her mourning garb for a long time after her husband's death. I think that's what's so nice about the project as a whole, in a sense, that these things, they have a weight to them and they do give you some insight into the history and they're really interesting pieces of contemporary design, but they don't take themselves too seriously. There's sort of these delightful little amuse-bouche which open up the collection and show you a thing about it without necessarily feeling freighted with the desire to come across as terribly serious or po-faced, which during the festival you see a huge number of installations and events which have slightly trumped up credentials. They maybe drop in a, um, a topic that feels very important like climate change or economic disparity and pretend to be about that to give themselves this kind of artificial credibility. Yeah. And what's so nice about this is it doesn't do that. It just sort of says, oh, it's the... It's a ghost of a chair. (laughs) What feels so successful about the exhibition is that um, the London Design Festival is obviously a chance to act as something of a public outreach programme for design and to um, introduce the discipline to a host of new people and audiences. And often that means relying on spectacle and very big and flashy and showy Um, projects to lure in an audience which you know fine all well and good there's a place for that but I think what's so nice about Please Sit is that it makes use of a resource London already has Fenton House is fabulous it's beautiful more people should go but no one knows about it and that's very nice that the design is being used there to draw people into an existing space to maybe emphasize aspects of its collection it already has And to sort of create this sense of contemporary design being used to highlight some really extraordinary works of design from the past. 
The other really nice thing about it uh, that I felt was important, especially in the context of other LDF installations, is that it's uh, planned to be on display for a much longer time than just the duration of LDF. Uh, and there's programming around it uh, well into uh, 2020. So the norm is that things get shown for a week and then it gets either scrapped or moved on elsewhere Uh, and you can really tell with this project that uh, care and thought has gone into how it's put together and uh, it's in keeping with that I think uh, this idea that it's going to be on for for a while maybe this is a a good time to segue into our morning at the VNA. So um, a little bit of background to it. Every year the VNA hosts a number of exhibitions inside it and in its courtyard and around it. It's built as the hub of the festival and I think it's a place where someone new to the London Design Festival can orientate themselves a little bit. So they can go along to this public space, see a load of installations of very different kinds under one roof and hopefully the idea being they get a sort of taster menu of what contemporary design is today. Some of those installations are really public in that they'll be in the main entrance of the VNA or in the big courtyard inside the VNA. Uh, others are sort of tucked away in smaller rooms. You just sort of stumble upon them when you walk around the museum. It's interesting, I think, to compare it to something like Fenton House because in some ways the premise is the same, even though it's on a much bigger scale. It's this idea of embedding contemporary design in a historical context and having it sort of speak to the collections. So I think we're going to start with two of the installations, which will be the first things I imagine most guests to the V&A see. Uh, two main routes into the V&A. One, you can come in on the big Cromwell Road entrance. The other way in is through um, the Amanda Levitt courtyard. And in that sort of spirit of public outreach they've commissioned installations for both of those spaces uh the first one being at that main Cromwell Road entrance see things by Sam Jacobs studio a suspended glazed uh, box I suppose which if you look up into it as you enter the VNA you have a, an animated a digital animation and the animation shows both marine life and also uh, ocean plastic and waste imagine kind of like a big child's nightlight almost where you see those things going across the bedroom ceiling but instead of lovely unicorns and sort of planets and stars it's things like old plastic wrappers um awfulness that ended up in the ocean that shouldn't have and i think the idea is it's supposed to be to an extent confrontational. So you have the sort of loveliness of those memories of images moving across like a child's bedroom. It's meant to shock you that these plastic bits of detritus can intrude into that. It's supposed to be this sort of loveliness that begins to be polluted as you look into it and see some of the waste, some of the excess that we pumped into the oceans. So at the other entrance of the VNA, the Exhibition Road entrance, there um, uh, there's this non-pavilion which also frames itself, sort of anyway, as a response to environmental crisis. Yeah, it's a work by Studio Macat, their project, and Proud Studio. And when you go into that courtyard, what you see are these four kind of structural elements pylons almost rising out of the courtyard that sort of describe a square so they sort of demarcate a space within which there's nothing and then you're greeted by very helpful uh members of the team bearing ipads 
who hold the iPad up and through augmented reality in an app they've developed, uh, when you look through the screen, you begin to um, see buildings appear within that space. Almost one of the most interesting things about this was how this framework or this hint at a framework was based on an actual thing. Uh, it's a Swiss concept called the Baugespanne. Everyone knows the Balgash banner. I'm going to I'm going to over-explain just <laughs> just in case people might not be familiar with this. But this is apparently something that's required for any building project in Switzerland, whether it's a private residential extension or if it's a big public project. Uh, and it's to give uh, people a sense of what sort of space it will occupy. Yeah, and so you have that space and then within it, as you look through the app, they've developed a number of different pavilions, each a response by a different studio. So you start to see different virtual realms appearing within this space. And all of them are calculated around this idea that one of the big problems facing the world today in terms of economic disparity, consumerism, environmental damage is that we value things only in terms of GDP. So the problem is all of our ideas around development are focused on market transactions and we always feel that that market needs to keep growing, it needs to keep getting bigger. So their hope is that these little digital worlds which all poke and pull at that idea might trigger someone to begin to challenge that and wonder whether there might be other economic systems or different ways of measuring value. And what I suppose is to be commended as well is that these installations tackling these sorts of issues have digital components which mean that they are not using as many material resources that a big sort of large scale installation in the courtyard would uh, would typically use uh, and I think that's that's a positive. So uh, one of the installations, this is in the um, John Medeski Garden at the V&A, where they always have a big installation. It's called Bamboo Ring Weaving into Lightness by the architect Kengo Kuma. And it's a huge sort of structure made from bamboo interwoven with carbon fiber. And the trouble is, it's it's presented as this huge technical triumph, I think. But you looked into carbon fiber a little bit and some of the properties of the material, and there are some issues. Only that it's non-biodegradable and recycling it is still sort of in the early stages. It's not widely recycled and it's quite resource intensive to recycle. Yeah, and so it's one of these structures which I think probably draws a lot of people in. People go to see it. Kengo Kuma is a big name. It's in a very prominent position. It's got this element of spectacle about it. But you you begin to wonder to what end it's there. What's it really saying about contemporary design? I know what end because it says in the blurb, it says it's intended to be a catalyst for weaving people and place together. Well, there we go. So I think we thought we'd save one of our favourite things we've seen until last, which is an installation at the V&A called Black Masking. It's a collection of costumes and a documentary film that's been created by the contemporary artist um, Demond Melancon of the Young Seminole Hunters and Assemble. Demond Melancon, he's a man who lives in New Orleans and for Mardi Gras each year he produces these absolutely extraordinary sort of carnival costumes. They have the most exquisite hand-sewn beadwork and then huge kind of feather headdresses and wings sort of very peacocky very ostentatious but the level of care he puts into making them 
is really remarkable. There's also deep and very thoroughly considered symbolism, often focusing on figures uh, such as Haile Selassie of Ethiopia uh, and local uh, New Orleans uh, figures. It's a natural fit for the tapestry galleries in that it's looking at textiles, symbolism and identity. It's also uh, a type of design and craft uh, that doesn't uh, typically get a showing in a context like the V&A. This is the first time these costumes have been exhibited outside of the United States. Yeah, and it's all accompanied by this documentary which shows um, which shows the, uh, Demond creating the costumes and sort of just kind of living in New Orleans and his experience there, walking around his neighbourhood, speaking with his friends, speaking with other members of his community. And it's very funny because it's very candid. So it's him making these costumes and all of the frustrations that come with that and having to be ready on date and also this huge element of pageantry that the whole community is coming out in these extraordinary creations and sort of peacocking around and there's some very funny mock showdowns between like rival costumes. Uh, and it's it really is quite moving because it uses this craft and this sense of occasion and spectacle as a way of exploring the people's lives in those neighbourhoods and that they work sort of year round leading up to this event and what they're producing for that. And it's a real expression of identity and exploration of the issues that they face. I should say it's quite a long documentary and it's one that I think needs quite a lot of attention. I'd like to go away and watch it again actually in full Uh, so it's not necessarily a light installation or one which you get much out of from a very cursory glance but I think there's a lot of depth there that would really reward uh, close study. So both Fenton House and the V&A installations uh, are instances where contemporary design is embedded in uh, historical collections They do this quite differently, though. Uh, Fenton House has the benefit of being smaller and so uh, has been able to spend more time letting the designers uh, really get to know the collections and respond to them in a sensitive way. Uh, Whereas at the V&A, well, they... It's, it's a bigger operation. There are more sponsors involved as well, uh, which is significant. Yeah, I think so. It's a broader church. So whereas Fenton House is a single, really tightly curated and well-oiled, well-run project, um, the V&A has to play host to a huge number of different installations. So there's, there's less overall rhyme and reason. I think it is also um, more of a public hub. So they go heavier on spectacle, I would say, and are perhaps less sensitive to some of those historical collections. I think there's less engagement as a whole because it needs to play that role of being a little bit the standard bearer for the festival both its positives and its commercial necessities. So there are brands like Sony in there, for instance, who are showing off their work, and that makes a big difference. You also get a sense of the curatorial voice being a bit muddled at the V&A, where you're not quite sure if it's the V&A signing off these projects and presenting them, or if it's LDF, uh, or if it's the uh, sponsors themselves. Uh, this comes across as in the typography and of the wall labels and things like that, the sort of language that the V&A would typically use to describe and present its exhibits uh, is, sometimes goes missing. So that's Desanyo's LDF experience so far. Uh, so please sit and then the installations at the V&A. Throughout this week, we're going to be heading all over the city and 
podcasting as we go, uh, reporting back on what we see, what we like, what we don't like so much, and trying to make a little bit of sense of the festival, which is quite a sprawling event uh, as we go through it. So the next episode should be out in a few days' time. Keep an eye on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. (music) 